This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to welcome four guests who focus on political dynamics in Southeast Asia. The first iteration of this group came together as a roundtable at the Conference of the Canadian Council for Southeast Asian Studies in 2021. The aim of that roundtable was to discuss democratic backsliding and rising authoritarianism in the region, and also grassroots mobilizations in response to such phenomena. The convener and chair of that roundtable was Nu Trong. Nu is assistant professor in the Department of Politics and Public Affairs at Denison University. She is a Mansfield Luce Asia Scholars Network Fellow and a Rosenberg Institute Scholar. She was joined by two more of our guests today, Eric Martinez Cojonta, who is Director of the Institute for the Study of International Development and Associate Professor of Political Science at McGill University, and Maggie Shum, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Penn State Erie in Pennsylvania. Our fourth guest today, Megan Ryan, was not part of the original roundtable, but as you'll hear, her research is right in line with the theme of rising illiberalism in the region. She is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Michigan and was a 2020 United States Institute of Peace scholar. In their conversation, the guests chat about political repression and resistance across Southeast Asia, comparing and contrasting different cases while always keeping the more global trend towards authoritarianism in view. I hope you enjoy listening to their conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, here is that discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Um, I want to just start by going around and having everyone introduce themselves and their disciplinary backgrounds. Maybe each of you could just say something kind of broadly about your academic journeys, especially your previous research and how you came to study political dynamics in Southeast Asia. New, maybe we should start with you since you were the contact person for this podcast. Hi, my name is New Chong. I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Politics and Public Affairs at Denison University. Prior to that, I was um, have also had previous policy experience studying, for example, decentralization in Cambodia, um, research on China and Taiwan, experience, immersive experience on the ground in Vietnam. And so my research has been fundamentally concerned with the dynamics of people power and resistance, what exactly what we are talking about today. Um, in particular, I am concerned with modes of people resistance, as well as the responses of the state to people's expression of social discontent, particularly in Vietnam, in China, and in Cambodia. So I am especially delighted to have this opportunity where we can talk more about these important topics. Eric, maybe you can jump in here and introduce yourself and your background. Yes, thank you, Ben. Um, I am um, a, an associate professor of political science at McGill. I work largely on uh, political development, political economy, 
and democracy in Southeast Asia. And, um, and I wrote my first book about the politics of inequality in uh, largely Malaysia and Thailand, but also compared with, uh, with the Philippines and Vietnam. And that first book was looking at um, institutions, especially political parties and state structures, can help to reduce inequality. And, um, and Malaysia has had historically very strong institutions. And so I argued in that book that Malaysia did better than Thailand in reducing um, inequality. Um, I come to the study of uh, Southeast Asia because I am um, originally um, from the Philippines. Um, my parents were Filipino, but um, I, I was born in Sri Lanka. I grew up in Italy. So um, I come to the Philippines somewhat from a kind of oblique angle. But I've always um, been very much concerned, interested, um, fascinated by Southeast Asia. Uh, broadly, uh, comparatively, uh, the Philippines especially, but also Thailand, where I spent uh, quite a number of years, um, and, and other countries. So I, um, I am um, uh, very much uh, rooted in Southeast Asia, uh, but, but I look at it from a broadly comparative angle. Megan, you want to jump in? Sure. I'm a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the University of Michigan, and I'm studying illiberalism and democratic backsliding or democratic reversal in Myanmar. And I first became interested in the political dynamics of Myanmar and Southeast Asia more broadly um, after volunteering on the uh, Thai-Burma border at a clinic treating Karen refugees. I then got really interested in Myanmar and Southeast Asia and got my MA in Southeast Asian Studies. And then I began working um, at the State Department as a conflict an analyst at a time when the Rohingya crisis had sort of captured the attention of the international community and when a Buddhist protectionist movement known as Mabata had garnered nationwide support for a suite of discriminatory laws that intended to restrict interfaith marriage um, and slow down Muslim population growth. And that was when I decided to start my PhD. And I was really puzzled by why the Buddhist Sangha, which had sort of a history of leading resistance to military rule, would be at the forefront of such an illiberal movement that condoned discrimination. And so this is really the subject of my ongoing dissertation research. Last but not least, Maggie, maybe you could just say a little bit about your background. Yes, happy to. Um, so I'm currently uh, assistant professor of political science at uh, Penn State Erie. Um, so my journey back to sort of the Asian side is kind of interesting. I actually started off as America, uh, Latin Americanist during my PhD program at Notre Dame. I'm very interested in social movement, participatory mechanism with a particular focus on Brazil. And so my dissertation, I actually wrote about how a policy called participatory budgeting diffused within Brazil with the lens of um, um, political party and party organization from the uh, early 1990s to 2012. But during the dissertation period, also um, Hong Kong um, also going through political turmoil. And then it was during the umbrella movement that I was kind of like, oh, what happened at home, right? I spent my you know, academic life looking, you know, looking further, looking away, but then I was like, what's going on back home? But and so after the, my um, after I finished my dissertations, and it allows me that sort of flexibility to sort of like expand my research interests and region too, right? So um, it actually coincided with the 2019 um, the anti uh, extradition bill movement that took place in Hong Kong. 
So it's really partly driven by um, academic curiosity, right? Because I'm interested in social movement and participation, uh, participation, but it's also partly personal that I, you know, decided to okay, let's let me also use my skill that I developed through the program, and um, to look at uh, to kind of. Like, refocus on my region, you know, largely looking at Hong Kong and to some extent Taiwan. And so right now my research predominantly focuses on um, transnational uh, contentious politics uh, mobilization and focusing on Hong Kong diaspora, how some of them that they exit Hong Kong, but then they still keep their voice so that they continue to protest and to fight for um, uh, democracy in Hong Kong. So that's my big focus right now. Thank you all for those introductions, and thank you again for joining us on the channel today. So the first iteration of this group came together as a roundtable at the Conference of the Canadian Council for Southeast Asian Studies in 2021, I believe. The aim of that roundtable was basically to discuss this phenomenon of democratic backsliding and rising authoritarianism across the region of Southeast Asia, and also grassroots mobilizations in response to that phenomena. So new as the convener and chair of that roundtable, maybe you could just say something about how it came to be, how the group came together, and what compelled you to organize it at that moment. What compelled me to convene the roundtable in the first place um, truly stems from a my own personal um, concerns, fundamental concerns with the issue of social justice issue of people dynamic and people resistance, the precarity of people resistance on the ground, how the way in which state in turn act in response to people protests and social movement um, can have significant impact um, on the lives um, at the very grassroots. And in my capacity as a scholar, as an assistant professor um, in Department of Politics and Public Affairs at Denison University at the moment, but also in my long, um, very deeply rooted interest in the region um, and question about how, you know, dynamic of state repression, state repressive responsiveness and repression in turn affect tensions between state and society. Um, it, it really drives me to mainly respond to what was going on at the moment. So as you know, at the time that round table was convened, um, it was in the immediate period um, following the February 2021 military coup in Myanmar. But even long before that, other parts of Southeast Asia in Asia more broadly have also experienced significant waves of protest, oppositions, pushback against authoritarian turns. You know, we have Thailand pro-democracy youth movements. We have audacious calls for monarchical reforms in Thailand, um, as well as Hong Kong pro-democracy movement against extradition bill. And so it was imperative for us as scholars um, to respond, um, to engage with the following aims. First is to throw crucial light from a comparative perspective on the causes of dissent and opposition, dynamic of social mobilization, as well as the precarity faced by protesters and activists in South Asia. And second, we want to direct attention to important moments of people's struggle and resistance and attention that are much um, needed um, to this episode of resistance 
um, and people's powers, people's struggles for power on the ground. Eric, maybe you could build on what New's saying and set the stage even a little more. How would you introduce and characterize the rise of illiberalism broadly in Southeast Asia? Well, Southeast Asia historically has not been very hospitable, very fertile ground for liberalism or democracy or liberal democracy. In the post-war period, when many of these countries uh, were becoming independent, much of Southeast Asia has uh, was uh, under uh, some form of illiberal governance. So this is true in mainland Southeast Asia, where you had uh, largely communist and authoritarian regimes, and in uh, maritime Southeast Asia, where you had a combination of uh, somewhat illiberal uh, dominant party systems and then more hard authoritarian regimes. So Southeast Asia has not been a, a, a generally good place for democracy in the post-war period. The exception was the Philippines that um, had democracy when it became uh, independent uh, from 46 until 1972, uh, when uh, Ferdinand Marcos then established martial law and, um, and a dictatorship. Uh, those 26 years of democracy were significant in the context of a region that is generally illiberal, um, but at the same time, the democracy in the Philippines was uh, generally institutionally quite weak and not terribly effective at um, public policy, economic development uh, overall. So Philippines, somewhat of an exception to the post-war trend in terms of illiberalism, but at the same time, a relatively weak democracy. Now, the shift in Southeast Asia um, does occur uh, towards the late 80s and early 1990s when uh, democracy starts to um, take somewhat greater hold. It's still a mixed picture in this period, uh, but you do see some emergence of liberal democratic governments. This is in the context, in the global context, of what Samuel Huntington termed the third wave of democracy. And Samuel Huntington argued that this began, this third wave began uh, in Portugal in, in 1974, uh, moved through Southern Europe, then to South America, um, Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union by the early 90s, and as well East Asia and Southeast Asia. So a global trend uh, that began in the mid-70s all the way into the early 90s of countries moving towards liberal democracy. Southeast Asia was part of that trend, in particular the Philippines and Thailand. The Philippines in 1986 had a, uh, a democratic revolution, a, a four days of uh, peaceful protest that ousted the 14-year uh, dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. And Thailand in 1992 also had a major middle-class um, revolution, people power movement as well, uh, that ousted a military government. So Philippines 86, Thailand 1992, moved back to democracy. Beyond the Philippines and Thailand, uh, a bit later in this period, Indonesia in 1999 does also move towards democracy. And then Timor-Leste, becoming independent from Indonesia, also moves toward democracy. So four countries in Southeast Asia, uh, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, and Timor-Leste have in the recent uh, two decades or so, uh, or three decades, have had more experience with democracy. But at the same time, the picture remains very mixed in Southeast Asia in the sense that Thailand has reverted back and forth between democracy and authoritarianism. The Philippines has maintained turnover in democratic, uh, of democratic elections, 
but the democratic governance remains institutionally very weak. Indonesia and Timor-Leste, on the other hand, perhaps quite surprisingly, given Indonesia's 32 years under Suharto of very harsh authoritarianism, has actually progressed more significantly in towards a more robust democracy. And Timor-Leste, also a very poor country, but nonetheless Timor-Leste also uh, doing relatively better in terms of democracy compared to other countries. Uh, there are other countries in the region, Myanmar, which we'll talk about later, that have also had uh, some periods of democracy, uh, but with very mixed results. So overall, um, Southeast Asia, historically, uh, not the most fertile region for uh, democracy, like in contrast to South America, Latin America, that uh, had a big surge towards democracy uh, in the third wave. Uh, Southeast Asia, ultimately a very mixed picture, including after the third wave of democratization. That's a great and impressively done introduction to sort of the dynamics of a, a large and diverse region. So thank you for that, Eric. Something that's been mentioned at least two or three times now is the 2021 coup in Myanmar. And Megan, this is something that you've written about in the past. And I wonder, maybe you can start by just reminding listeners of what happened there, and then maybe we'll have some follow-up questions about it. Sure. So the Myanmar case is probably the most extreme case of democratic backsliding in Southeast Asia, and it would perhaps be more apt to call Myanmar a case of democratic breakdown. So in February 2021, the Myanmar military mounted a coup against Myanmar's popularly elected NLD, or the National League for Democracy-led government, after a decade-long experiment with democracy. So no one really predicted this coup. It didn't really seem to make sense to a lot of longtime Myanmar watchers and political scientists. The Myanmar military, known as the Tatmadaw Burmese, had written the rules of the game in their favor in the 2008 constitution. So despite allowing free and fair elections and lifting many restrictions on civil liberties, the military retained control over its core prerogatives, full control over the military, leadership over three key ministries and 25% of parliamentary seats, allowing it to veto constitutional change. The coup happened after the NLD won a landslide in the 2021 elections, dashing hopes in the military that its proxy party, the USDP, would significantly improve their vote share from the prior 2015 election. But nevertheless, there was still no concrete threat to the military's constitutionally protected prerogatives. Some argue that the commander-in-chief Min Aung Hlaing's personal ambitions explained the coup as he was due to retire, and the election made clear that there was no path for him to assume a leadership role in the government. My view is that the Myanmar military, deeply enmeshed in the state for over 50 years, had significant political and economic interests to protect, and the 2020 election was a clear signal that the military would have limited avenues to do so. So in response to the coup, we've seen various cross-cutting anti-coup resistance efforts that have proliferated nationwide, including street protests, a civil disobedience movement, an opposition parallel government, guerrilla armed attacks, and escalating attacks by existing ethnic armed groups. And almost two years since the coup, the military has been unable to consolidate control over the country's territory in the face of this diverse and resilient resistance. And over time, economic hardship has definitely made it difficult to for the resistance forces to maintain resilience, especially among the civil disobedience movement. But the resistance has found some innovative ways of continuing. So unable to continue striking due to economic conditions, some civil disobedience 
movement members have refused to pay taxes. And in the face of military, the military's brutal crackdown, protesters have adapted flash mob techniques instead of mass nationwide demonstrations. And then others have fled to the liberated territories to fight alongside the ethnic armed organizations. And, and to this day, the resistance forces still remain resilient and have um, succeeded in at least making it extremely difficult for the military to consolidate control over the country. If I could just follow up on that, one thing that I know you've worked on in the past is online posting with respect to the coup. And you specifically explore the prevalence of and levels of engagement with state propaganda and disinformation on the one hand, and with critical or resistance-related posting on the other hand. So can you just talk about that analytical project and what you learned from it? Definitely. So this uh, project is basically came about because both my co-author Van Tran and I had been in the field in Myanmar doing research and we had to leave abruptly like most other scholars doing field work due to COVID. But then we couldn't go back after the military coup happened. And so in the meantime, when our research was disrupted, we kind of had this idea of just capturing all of the, um, a, a lot of viral content on Facebook related to the military coup to see what we might be able to, to look into. Um, and this was the genesis of a project where we looked at um, the way in which both um, pro-military forces, the military and resistance forces were using social media in the post-coup contention. And I would say that our main findings um, from this research project is that the prior pro-democracy activists digitalized resistance against smaller scale instances of government repression prior to the coup was really critical to the spread and resilience of digital activism against the coup. And I think this is quite significant because um, prior literature on the role of the internet on the Arab Spring uprisings, for example, argued that the internet was critical to mobilizing protesters despite lack of prior organization. But 10 years later, as authoritarian regimes across the world have updated the, their digital repression repertoires and countries like China and Russia are exporting the technologies they use to control the Internet, it's increasingly important for digital activists to understand the digital information landscape and to innovate on tactics in order to evade censorship and digital repression to remain resilient against authoritarian regimes. And we found that there were really three critical ways in which prior digitalized activism during the pre-coup period helped strengthen resistance after the coup and weaken the capacity of the military. One was the digital rights community in Myanmar lobbied Facebook prior to the coup to track and remove abusive content. Um, and almost immediately following the coup, Facebook removed official military linked pages and quickly and effectively um, removed most pro-military content. So in our sample of public Burmese language Facebook content, we found that 60% of pro-military posts were removed. And I think it was only about 40% of um, resistance posts that were moved. The second pathway was really this training of activists and journalists and digital security practices that were then taken up by the resistance forces and spread quite broadly. So fact-checking campaigns were established during the 2020 elections to help people recognize political disinformation, and organizations held training sessions on digital security practices, such as anonymizing posts, using coded language, and using VPNs to evade censorship. And immediately following the coup, VPN usage went up by 7,000%, suggesting a massive ability of protesters to evade the military's censorship 
And then over time, we also found that the resistance forces um, were increasingly using coded language and were learning based on the activists' um, sort of tactics that were distributed in the past. And then the last mechanism is really the building of a broad network of digital rights activists before the coup um, and how that helped spread digital activism among the broader population into different pockets of dissent across the country. And we found that pro-resistance content proliferated post-coup, while pro-military content was highly limited on Facebook in the early period. So about 70% of the posts in our sample were pro-resistance, and a mere 2.7% were pro-military. And so overall, these three types of digital activism that occurred prior to the coup have played a critical role in sustaining the grassroots resistance to the military rule that continues to deny the Tatmadaw the ability to consolidate control over its territory to the present moment. Maggie, your work also fits right in with this theme. You've written previously about the hashtag Milk Tea Alliance that linked online activists in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Thailand. And despite kind of initial hopes invested in the movement, not least by the international media, you note that it seems not to have lived up to maybe its initial promise. And I wonder if you could just say why not and what might this mean for the future of digital activism generally or in the region particularly? Yes, definitely. I'm also really appreciating uh, Megan sharing, you know, her research on Myanmar and, and digital activism. So I think it really kind of, you know, um, um, well, our topic can speak with each other. And in, and in returning to uh, look at the Milk Tea Alliance, and I think... Um, like in, in a point that, I mean, not only Milk Tea Alliance, but there's also a lot of other movement that has such a strong presence online, right? But then most of them have faced the challenge of sustainability in a way that like you see the hashtag trending is going virals and whatnot, they kind of just burst onto the scene. But what happened after that initial burst, right? So I think uh, in the case of Milk Tea Alliance, I think it is interesting because it really started off as almost like a silly meme war, right? Between uh, internet users, um, you know, between the Thai users versus the um, pro-China uh, uh, internet users that what they are called the little pink. And then at one point it was joined by also uh, internet users in Hong Kong and Taiwan in Kala, you know, in support for the for the Thai uh, internet users. So, but then what is interesting is that um, this silly meme war really got elevated uh, to, to become such a, um, a political expression. It's really because of the political context at the time. And then in a way that during, it was like in the 2000s where, um, uh, China factor was very prominent, you know, among the countries in, in East, uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia. A lot of times people feel that sort of frustration and threat towards Beijing's assertiveness in the regions, right? And then so in this sense that uh, under this kind of political context, what we see is that such a powerful realization or almost like a awakening is that, oh, we're all on the same boat, especially with the context of China, right? So in that sense, I think that's why silly memoir becomes, becomes such an important expression and, and eventually becomes the multi-alliance because of that sort of uh, uh, creation of this 
collective got a collective identity among people in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and uh, and Thailand, right? And so I think it it really speaks strongly with um, you know social movement scholar, for example, Sid Terrell. They talk about framing how you know the action of fending off those little pinks online or bending together, you know, uh, to to support a victim of online targeting by the little pink, and it becomes such something that has a meaning. It becomes almost a weight of resisting the the growing aggression of China in the region. But then again, you know, when we look at digital activism, it is um, kind of like at one point when we, it's easy to pick out the the the, the pros for, for this digital activism, it makes this digital technology or the uh, ICT, uh, information communication technology, makes it easier for us to, and cheaper for us to connect on a global scale. I mean, we see it in Arab Spring and as well as we see in the US too, right? The Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, they all kind of get that kind of attention that bursts through you know, Twitter, through social media. And so in that sense, it afford it can afford us that sort of collective creation of common identity. We work on a collective action frame as well as the most important thing, dissemination of information. But those are very important steps at the early, early stage. But what we think about is in terms of digital technology is something in the media and communication study called affordance. In a way, those kind of tools, it is what is it designed for us to use? Right. So in the sense that uh, when we look at those movements, especially at the beginning, like Twitter, Twitter actually helped us facilitate the spread of information. The way how Twitter, um, um, so like the communication or what makes it trending, what makes it viral, right, through hashtags, uh, retweets and whatnot. And this is really helpful, especially at the beginning stage to get that sort of um, attracting people that may not be interested in the in the movement to learn more about it. And for those people who are already into the movement, using those platforms to really spread the words out and whatnot. And so that's kind of like the, the euphoric moment about, about you know, not only Milk Team, Alliance, but as well as all other movement that is like heavily based online, right? But then at the same time, we come to the down part. Those sort of technology, those sort of, you know, Twitters or Facebook and whatnot, they don't really necessarily help us to solve organization problems. When we think about this more old school sort of uh, organizing, uh, for example, you know, we look at the American civil rights movement as well as those pro-democracy movement in, in Brazil or in Latin America and in elsewhere. Um, they that they're basically relied on a strong you know network or strong uh, organizations right it's more very hierarchical you have the leaders and then the leaders and they kind of communicate and figure out a long-term strategy they need to make a decision as well as you also have people boots on the ground to really carry out you know those kind of actions right but then in in a more in because social media has such a, a horizontal type of you know network base right so in that sense it was very hard for them to come up, for example, when it is time to act or when it is time to you know, uh, figure out the long-term strategy or the tactic. It is very hard. Those kind of uh, media, those kind of technolo technology doesn't really facilitate as much in order to create those sort of um, a movement and create those sort of long-term sustain sustainable movement, right? And then so in in that sense, what we see in the Milky Alliance is that um, we, when we start tra uh, 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 trace, tracing, you know, those kind of... Um, 
tweets or using the hashtag multi alliance, what we see over time is like, sure, we see like spikes, right? So for example, during the uh, Myanmar coup, the, a lot of people kind of return to the scene and to start tweeting about a coup and as well as using the hashtag. But then over time, even though we have like event that will spark those kind of, of tweets, but then the spike goes like uh, the number of the tr uh, of the tweet goes lower or lower and lower, right? Up to now that like that's not many people using this hashtag uh, as much as well as even, you know, Twitter actually, you know, kind of dedicate an emoji of a little little milk tea and then to kind of support a movement. But then, you know, we don't see the talk about it much, right? So in that sense, I think what the Milk Tea Alliance um, sort of like um, a downfall was, um, is really about um, they, that, that sort of technology doesn't afford them to build a long-term movement. But I really like what uh, Megan was mentioning, right, in, 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 in Myanmar, is that they're like not only using the tools, but then also building a set of other tools and, and regulation and laws to, to maintain that sort of, um, to, to sort of like give that power of, for example, Facebook group in order to, you know, kind of like the, uh, spread for democracy messages, right? But what we see in multi-alliance, we don't see that sort of um, method or means to really build it up. But then I also want to end, I don't want to end up on a sour note. I do see this, um, there's you know, some some positivity that comes out from, from the multi-alliance, from the online movement in a way that, I mean, it is kind of sad to see a lot of the, the country members of the multi-alliance nowadays are actually far worse off in terms of politically, right? In Hong Kong, um, that is pretty much um, like all the social movement or civil society got uh, got clamped down. Myanmar is still, you know, under dictatorship and also Thailand is also, you know, uh, you know, remain unstable, right? But then I think what we see the hope is really um, people outside, right? Because the internet connection uh, connects us globally. But what we see is the diaspora community uh, outside of uh, Southeast Asia, so uh, in the region, that they start banding together and to kind of start join, um, joining each other in, 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 for example, movement, right? What we see in, for example, in the US, we start seeing not instead of, oh, Hong Kong uh, diaspora having their own, you know, um, rally or you know Taiwanese or Uyghur having the individual rallies and, and, and protests. But what we see is that all these diaspora are banding up together to either learn from each other, to kind of like, you know, exchange, you know, lessons in terms of, okay, how are you going to do a protest? How are you going to organize in, in a host country in the UK or in the US, right? So I think that's something that um, maybe some of the silver lining from this, from this um, multi-alliance is really that collective identity, it's not just something fade away. It may be still brewing, but then it is doing it at, at least at this moment, you know, at the, at, uh, in country outside of uh, Southeast Asia region. So that's, I'm going to leave it here. Did you have something you wanted to add, New? So much of the conversation, particularly um, from Megan and Maggie has, has, place the emphasis on digital activism, right? And that is really uh, one of the an important area of, of study. But I also want to stress here um, the resistance, the opposition that also takes place offline, right? Offline and how in many ways there's a strong linkage between what goes on online and what goes on offline, on the street. Um, 
And it's unfortunate that one of our original roundtable um, participant, um, Pim Sari, also goes by um, the name of Mok, um, is a human rights activist, a cultural critic, and a filmmaker who has very much stood on the front line of Thailand pro-democracy youth movement. And one of our original intentions was to allow for a conversation between scholar as well as activists on the ground. And I remember to this day one of a, a very powerful testimony that Mook shared with us at the roundtable about you know what are are the discontent, the deep-rooted discontent causes grievances that really move people um, like Thailand used to to protest on the street. Um, including, you know, um, an 18-year-old youth and his pregnant girlfriend, as Mook shared, um, and how the, under the difficult condition, particularly um, of the COVID-19 pandemic, they were then came um, to protest in for the very first time and sharing that, quote, you know, the government needs to know that we're dying. Um, so again, a very precarious situation. But I also want to share that what's interesting, you know, consideration about this digital activism is uh, for my own research, studying the 2016 self-nomination movement in Vietnam of independent candidates in Vietnam who are dissidents, who are civil society activists who have challenged the Vietnamese Communist Party by you know, nominating themselves and by launching a digital campaign using Facebook and social media. But what I learned is that in many ways, how they even knew each other, how they even established Thai, how they even learned, um, acquired these opposition repertoires to online space very much were, can be traced back to their long interaction offline. How they knew each other to protest in very, you know, active engagement in many spheres of civil society, in many spheres of resistance, um, anti-China resistance, protests, um, environmental movement. Um, those are examples in which we can see the ties between offline activism and activism, so-called digital in the cyberspace. And I'm curious whether or not you see that as well in, in, in your work, Megan and Maggie studying digital activism in Hong Kong and or in Myanmar. Yeah, that's a really important insight, New. And part of our Van and my findings are that the yeah, the prior organization among digital activists and their collaboration with pro-democracy activists even before the coup occurred um, was critical to the speed with which the mobilization against the coup occurred um, and the resilience of the resistance forces and ordinary people taking to Twitter or Facebook to engage in small acts of resistance. And even though the Myanmar military had sort of, um, they had banned Facebook quite quickly after the coup and Twitter, um, I think I mentioned this briefly, but VPN usage skyrocketed in Myanmar. And I think that this is really um, a result partially of the um, way in which Myanmar digital rights activists prior to the coup had sort of trained 
journalists, activists, and other civil society organizations working on contentious issues to um, think about digital security and learn these tactics. And so it was really this prior organization that was a result of smaller acts of repression by even the NLD-led government that I think played an important role in the resilience of the resistance forces on the ground. If, if I could just follow up on that um, and ask Megan, um, research you've been doing, it sounds really fascinating. I guess on the question of um, what Nu was asking in terms of the uh, the, um, the combination uh, between digital uh, resistance and on the ground uh, resistance, is it possible to to say that in Myanmar that um, that in the absence of this kind of uh, digital uh, mobilization and resistance, that the larger uh, civil disobedience movement <clears throat> and the kind of stalemate that has um, that has been achieved in Myanmar would not have occurred. In other words, that the digital um, resistance, digital activism, and the kind of antecedent training and all or, or, or networks that helped make this possible after the twenty twenty one coup, that that is um, central, fundamental to the capacity of of the CDM, civil disobedience movement, to hold their ground uh, against against the uh, the junta. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question, and it's something that um, it's difficult to answer. But I'd like to say that I think it is um, quite critical. I mean, I don't think we can say, you know, with certainty that without the prior organization and training uh, between the digital rights community and the more traditional pro-democracy activist community, without their collaboration, I don't know that we can say that the anti-coup resistance movement would be um, as resilient or as effective. But I do think that uh, it makes a lot of sense that the prior organization is really helping the resistance um, become more resilient and innovative um, and responding to uh, the military's acts of aggression, but also their attempts to um, continue to further control the internet and use the internet uh, as a um, surveillance tool. So I, I do think that uh, further research would really need to be done. I mean, Van and I were in the U.S. when we were doing this research, primarily looking at online activism. And so what we really want to do in the future is to go interview activists that are engaged in both online and offline activism against the, the coup. I mean, it's not possible to go to Myanmar now, but maybe, you know, um, in Thailand where there's a diasporic community and um, a community of activists to, to really get at this question is how important was um, the prior organization of the pro-democracy and digital rights community in the post-coup resistance movement. I think that's a really important question. No, I think this is yeah really really uh, important, um, fascinating stuff. Um, I mean, my my thought, my um, my query is whether the communications that is is possible through social media and and other forms of of, of digital uh, uh, means, if that has been central to enabling kind of the physical um, on the ground resistance, that in the absence of that kind of um, digital communication, I wonder if 
it would be difficult to communicate to 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 find strategies of physical resistance given the kind of you know, deep repression on the streets that that the military has had so that that's sort of where I, what what I'm wondering about yeah yeah and one more thing i would add to that is that I mean, even through my personal experience, it's been really difficult to maintain contact with a lot of my research partners on the ground. And even though they have access to secure digital platforms like Signal, for example, as a messaging app, um, you know, they're changing their numbers frequently. Um, They're moving from the city to the rural areas to sort of evade military surveillance. And there's a lot of disruptions to their internet connectivity. But nevertheless, Um, I'm still working with them and still communicating with them and writing um, and getting their input. And I think that that wouldn't be possible if we didn't have, if they didn't have access to the internet and didn't know how to use VPNs, it just wouldn't be possible. And I assume that that also facilitates communication between activists outside the country and those inside the country that facilitates all sorts of resistance and and advocacy to international the international community, um, and so I think it really is um, a game changer in resistance to authoritarian rule. And I I mean I think it's also worth um, important to point out, and this comes out in your in the in the research that Wang has also shared with us, and, and you Megan has shared with us as well, which is that. Um, cyberspace in itself has constituted its a kind of its own front line, right? Um, that those who occupy the space are not only activists and protesters and those who are resisting the coup in Myanmar or in you know in Thai in contact with Thailand or the Philippines and so on and so forth, but that the state itself has also, in many way, fighting in this. Uh, on this front line in this by cyber, cyberspace. Um, and what I've learned um, from, from research in Philippines, Thailand, as well as um, Myanmar, is that there can be a deliberate um, attempt on the part of the state to create a kind of what I think of you know, optimal obfuscation, right, to use a term from um, IPE, where the state really... Um, make it difficult um, for both domestic and international audience to be able to really tell uh, which information is real, which information is fake, who exactly are, quote unquote, protesters, who are pro-coup, who are resistors. And this kind of ambiguity, this kind of um, obfuscation can really be played to the advantage of the state. Um, And I'm also curious, Eric, from your perspective, um, particularly comparative study of Thailand and Philippines uh, or broadly of Southeast Asia as a region, do you see similarities but also differences between these resistant movements um, during this period? Yeah, I was just going to comment, uh, thank you, New, on the um, the issue of um, disinformation on social media and in the internet more generally in the case of the Philippines. and um, And that has been central absolutely fundamental, um, as many analysts have argued, to Duterte's regime in terms of attacking and destroying his opponents um, and his critics, as well as to the um, the landslide victory of Bongbong Marcos, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, um, in the election uh, just this past, uh, this past May. Uh, in the case of Duterte, the success there has been in um, 
in getting uh, you know, trolls and, and, and bots to, to respond to critics and to sort of avalanche them, overwhelm them with these, these negative, negative attacks. And someone like Maria Ressa, who won the Nobel Peace Prize and the founder of Rappler, a, a media um, uh, service in, in the Philippines, a new service, um, uh, she has documented uh, quite extensively. She's been a, a victim of the, these these attacks um, on on the internet, but she has documented extensively how this kind of operation network developed in the Philippines um, to overwhelm critics, opponents of the Duterte regime. So that's been a fundamental tool um, that has been uh, very um, uh, powerful for Duterte. In the case of Bongbong Marcos. Many analysts have argued that one of the uh, the factors that led to his overwhelming victory uh, in this past election was that he uh, learned to use uh, social media very effectively, Facebook in particular, um, to uh, to overwhelm uh, these these uh, these channels with disinformation, misinformation, disinformation about particularly the regime of his father, uh, Ferdinand Marcus. And creating this uh, completely false narrative that uh, the Ferdinand Marcos regime brought economic development to the Philippines, that it was a sort of golden age of the Philippines, and crucially that the human rights abuses that have been documented extensively did not in fact occur, and that uh, his opponents, um, Marcos's opponents, uh, the Aquino government, uh, Cory Aquino, um, are actually the um, the real causes of the Philippines' um, malaise overall, and um, and stunningly, uh, many people seem to have bought these ideas because of the sophistication, the proliferation of this kind of uh, disinformation. I've seen some of the the videos that have been uh, done, and they're very very sophisticated in channeling this disinformation. So. Um, so yes, for sure, the kind of disinformation um, by the state under Duterte has occurred, uh, and, and the attacks against opponents, critics, but as well by an aspiring uh, presidential candidate who was not yet in the state, but then became the president, Bongbo Marcos, uh, effectively using disinformation to win uh, overwhelmingly. Now, to be clear, um, I don't think disinformation is the only factor that led to the the landslide victory of of uh, Bongbong Marcos. In fact, I think a significant part of the um, the success of Bongbong Marcos um, against Lenin Robredo was the discontent of many Filipinos with past democratic governments and the belief that since um, 1986, since the Philippines returned to democracy and ousted Ferdinand Marcos, uh, that democratic governments have not done enough to improve the lives of of the poor as well as of the middle class. So general discontent with the uh, policy um, uh, output of democratic government. Uh, so there is more going on than simply uh, than just social media um, disinformation. But the social media disinformation has been a huge part of the tool that has allowed uh, Marcus to be elected. And so in that sense, the Philippines is part of, of this narrative, of this story. Yeah, I would like to jump in as well. I think I'm very glad you bring out the um, the disinformation uh, dialogue, and then um, in a funny way that um, it's just like you know, drawing back to the case of Hong Kong. Um, in a way, we are in some sense kind of relatively lucky that our internet space is re remains relatively free even during the um, uh, protests. So in in a lot of times that. Um, 
And plus, I, I also agree, I think one of you guys mentioned about you know, sort of how the digital space it is turned into a battleground. It's almost like a battleground for narrative, right? The government is trying to pro uh, portray the protest as, you know, a riot, as, you know, kids that don't have anything better to do versus, you know, on the other side that, you know, coming from the protest side that they also, you know, create a dialogue or create a narrative of like, you know, this is why we are protesting. We're not protesting because of, you know, living uh, living standards gets very high. We're protesting because of democratic, um, you know, democratic reforms and whatnot, right? And so in that sense, I think um, the Hong Kong story in terms of disinformation is slightly, you know, different from the Myanmar one. But then the disinformation kicks in for the Hong Kong diaspora uh, community. Um, so uh, in my other study, I look at um, you know how Hong Kong diaspora actually participated in the U.S. Uh, presidential election in 2020, and that was a very um, I mean in on a whole, it is a very, very uh, controversial elections, but it's even more so for the Hong Kong diaspora, because that sort of misinformation that is very prevalent in the U.S. Uh, politics also got sipped into the diaspora community in a way that um, um, because of this misinformation or this like, super simplification of understanding uh, or I put like just opposing, you know, Hong Kong, China politics and U.S. politics on the same plane. At one point, um, you have uh, information about, oh, a vote for Biden means a vote for China or like a vote for Trump means a vote for Hong Kong. And then, and then because of this sort of uh, simplification, and that's a lot of the misinformation or the disinformation from the Trump campaign actually bleeds into the diaspora community in Hong Kong. So uh, when um, well, we did like um, uh, a survey to un to understand you know, the vote choice or intention, or 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 you know, kind of like the understanding of American politics. What we find is that um, really that sort of um, this, especially pro-Trump type rhetoric, was buying in. Like they were buying a lot into the pro-Trump rhetoric because of the pro-China stance. Um, but then um, a lot of diaspora will disregard a lot of other, you know, Trump's misogyny, treatment of women, as well as poor management of the pandemic, right? They would disregard, they will buy into a lot of those kind of false information, but they will hold on to only one that is, that, that makes sense for them is that, oh, Trump is, is a strong, quote unquote, strong man and has a strong stand on China and the Democrat parties are very weak on a, a foreign policy era and that, that and then as a result, what we see is that a lot of Hong Kong diaspora, those that who who could vote, they actually voted for Trump, and those that are that couldn't vote, they also express the support for for Trump, even though it's a candidate that do not embrace democratic values nor you know cared about you know Asian Americans and and whatnot. So I think that's what I want to bring out in terms of how um, disinformation affects sort of protesting from afar and changing that sort of dynamic for the diaspora community. So one question that I think important for us to consider is why should we care about Southeast Asia? How should we understand? Southeast Asia and these dynamics, these um, struggle for people power and resistance in Southeast Asia in a, in a larger, broader perspective. What is significant about Southeast Asia? Yeah, so if I could um, respond to that, um, I, I think the one larger question here is, 
to what extent is Southeast Asia part of this overall trend in terms of illiberalism and democratic backsliding in the globe? Um, this is what Southeast Asia is going through, what we're discussing, in some sense, is part of a larger global trend we've seen in India, in um, in Brazil. We've just discussed, Maggie was mentioning Trump in the United States, um, across different continents. We can go to Europe and Hungary. Uh, populism and liberalism, a combination of both, um, have been um, very problematic in countries that have in the past sustained liberal democracy. But we also see in Russia and China a, a further consolidation of authoritarianism. So there's a global trend out there, although I do want to note that um, some scholars like uh, Stephen Levitsky and Liu Kenwei have questioned um, how deep is this democratic backsliding. But in general, uh, many scholars and, and, and policy analysts believe there is a, this global trend. Southeast Asia is part of that trend on the one hand, because as we've discussed, there is backsliding in, in the Philippines and Thailand, and, and as Megan noted, um, really breakdown in Myanmar. Uh, so there is that trend, uh, part of that trend as well. On the other hand, it's also important to ask, you know, what is similar, what is distinct about Southeast Asia vis-a-vis vis vis this global trend and what is in fact similar. Here, I think one really has to be quite nuanced. On the one hand, we see um, you know, populism in terms of Duterte, and and Trump also sort of complementing Duterte, so you can see those those kinds of connections and and similarities. Um, but the phenomenon of Duterte in the Philippines, um, you know, is not something that has transcended across Southeast Asia in terms of populism um, in so many different countries. You know, populism is bandied about quite easily, but I think Duterte is quite different from someone like Jokowi in Indonesia or Taksin, who is previously termed also a populist. So I'd argue that there, there is, uh, one has to be careful about saying that there is a populist trend in Southeast Asia at the, at the current moment. Um, if I were to say what is really distinct about Southeast Asia, and uh, with the understanding that there is this global trend of decline in liberalism um, and democracy, this, this um, backsliding, I'd say that in many ways, um, a, a central cutting, um, transcending factor that goes across countries that are in this difficult condition is a general weakness of institutions, a difficulty of a kind of broad check and balance that has to do with, with horizontal accountability. So in the Philippines, Duterte's rise to power has been uh, all encompassing. He's been able to, to really control, dominate Congress. Uh, he's been able to, to um, attack the media, uh, take out the chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, attack the Human Rights Commission. It's been one after another. And the accountability, the institutional structures from political parties or rule of law have been uh, have really struggled to challenge him. Uh, similarly, in Thailand, uh, very difficult for a real kind of fair play by the opposition, particularly in the past 2019 elections after five years of military rule. Uh, in Thailand, you have a different dynamic of this kind of conservative royalist force against more progressive forces, but a similar trend is there about weak institutions in terms of a constitutional court, an electoral commission um, that are seen as very much biased, if not in the pocket of the royalist conservative forces, the doing the bidding of the royalist conservative forces. So this is, is problematic in terms of rule of law, in terms of a sense that there is fairness um, at play. 
And then if we were to go to Myanmar, uh, we also have uh, you know, weakness of uh, institutions uh, in general uh, that also affects the overall trends of political development. So it is true that what the military has done um, has, has been deeply problematic um, in terms of its, um, its uh, justification for the coup and its repression that followed from this coup. But it is also true that prior to the coup, there was a very uh, a minimal institution building in Myanmar in terms of, for example, the National League of the for Democracy becoming less uh, personalistic, less in the grips of one leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, and the sense of a broader kind of programmatic building. So, so there are larger trends that, um, that cut across these countries that could have led to that, that in the absence of this kind of institutional building, are also problematic for um, for larger democratic and liberal development. And, and weak institutions that also have strong colonial roots, such as in the Philippines, or the um, roots date back to the prioritizing of um, elections prior to building strong institutions. Um, like in your work, I like the Philippines and or in Cambodia, establishing election and prioritizing that first and foremost prior to building strong institutions. Yes, and that's a larger question that um, political science um, really needs to grapple with, as well as those who do who work on the ground in terms of supporting or promoting democracy, um, that while we're all believers in liberal democracy, that is not the only way to um, advancing elections. Uh, for example, it's not the only way to um, strengthen democracy in the long run. We all, one also has to do a lot of um, ground earlier groundwork, antecedent work in terms of institution building, rule of law, um, uh, bureaucratic uh, strengthening uh, that in the long run can help democracy uh, rather than assuming that simply uh, holding elections is the, the gateway to democracy. Often just holding elections without institutional strengthening, uh, institutional strengthening of parties, uh, of, of law, uh, of bureaucracy, those kinds of elections can eventually be quite uh, temporary, ephemeral in terms of strengthening political development in the long run. On that note, Eric, I know that we've already kept you past your heart out, so we're going to let you go, and then we'll take a short break and come back with just Megan, Maggie, and New. But Eric, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Eric. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. So before the break, we had a couple of you talking about the sort of global trend of rising authoritarianism, democratic backsliding, the rise of illiberalism around the world, how different kinds of misinformation play out in different political and geographical contexts. I wonder if we could drill down on that a little bit more. To what extent is Southeast Asia as a region part of this broader political shift across the globe? And to what extent, following up on what Eric said, is it unique and particular to the region? So I'll jump in to talk about the case of Myanmar, because I think that the case of Myanmar is quite unique. And at the same time, it's not isolated from the global trend and is influenced by the global trend. So I think that democratic 
backsliding or rather breakdown in Myanmar is primarily driven by the domestic situation, specifically the longstanding civil-military polarization. So after Ne Win's coup in 1962, the military embarked on five decades of military rule in which the state became entirely militarized. All political opposition was banned. Civil society was either co-opted by regime institutions or eliminated, and the economy was nationalized leading to isolation and economic collapse. And this prior militarization of the state and almost complete repression of civilian opposition created basically a rigid and out of touch military institution that has really struggled during the transition to build trust with the civilian led government and whose personnel was unable to transition and form a political party that could win elections and um, and safeguard military prerogatives. So I really think that the Myanmar case is a story about um, polarization between civilian and military forces. And this has led to a very um, highly unstable situation and has led to sort of the dramatic nature of Myanmar's coup. At the same time, we see a lot of similar tactics Um, that are being used, especially in the 2020 elections right before the coup, uh, by the military and military's proxy parties. So in the lead up to the coup, uh, the USDP, which is the military's proxy party, um, and the military itself as an institution, claimed that that there was widespread election fraud and um, used social media and many channels, um, namely military-created groups that were created to look like ordinary, you know, support groups for the USDP or the military, or even just, um, you know, random groups um, that people might be interested in because it matched their, like, interests, you know, like sports pages or um, healthcare pages selling healthcare products, and then really pushed this disinformation about the elections um, through these channels on social media. Um, Nobody really believed them, maybe except for the military and its small base of supporters. Um, But nevertheless, these tactics were used um, as a pretext for the coup. So I see this as sort of learning from the populist playbook that is, um, you know, being, and these tactics are being used, you know, all over the world, including during the U.S. elections. So, yeah, I think Myanmar's case is quite unique to the civil military situation and relations, um, but the authoritarian actors in Myanmar, the agents of authoritarian rule have um, used the tools that other populist autocrats have used in other contexts. Yeah, I want to build upon your comments on Myanmar, especially in relations to, you know, uh, the democratic backsliding or illiberal, uh, kind of the rise of illiberalism. Uh, You mentioned about polarizations and polarization is, you know, almost like a a, a boogeyman. And nowadays that, you know, polarization causes a lot of of issue, not only in the U.S., in my case, in thinking about Brazil as well. But something you mentioned earlier as well is uh, when you talked about how the military party was kind of um, 
manipulating the uh, constitution to basically give itself more power, right? And I think that's also something that is very much related to, you know, the, the, the discussion of global trend is that um, a lot of time, you know, democracy dies with a, with a whim, right? Those kind of incremental um, chipping down of uh, in a democratic pillar or democratic institutions. Um, so I want to kind of offer in a way that um, the case of Hong Kong, in a sense that um, you know, throughout the, the protests and also the aftermath, how we see like almost in front of our own eyes that institutions, even though semi-democratic institutions are just being destroyed, you know, little by little, but they're all through legal means, right? Um, so for example, in the case of Hong Kong, uh, in a sense that Hong Kong is uh, in, a, in a peculiar position that even though we have our mini constitution, the basic law, but then a lot of those um, uh, overarching, overarching framework uh, in terms of, you know, the power to change the law, a lot of times also, you know, is constrained by Beijing. So in that sense, um, in, in, in so like the, the, the collapse the collapse of the Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong political institutions. It's really um, through those sort of uh, law changes, or sometimes they even bringing out colonial rules that trying to um, um, shut down, for example, civil society to close up the space, and especially also in even in education policies and whatnot that are trying to really close Hong Kong off and also close off all, all sort of dissident voices and um, and, and pro-democracy voices in Hong Kong. So I do see this this sort of like uh, incremental dismantling of a political institution, some sort of, um, you know, we see it commonly, um, not I think not only in uh, East and Southeast Asia, but as well as, you know, in more kind of healthier democracy that we think of, for example, in the West, in the US, as well as, you know, in my other case that I study in Brazil, they all suffer from this sort of institutional breakdown in a, in a slow motion. Something that a conversation at this place, uh, at this point takes us, I think, is to think about, well, what comes out of these resistance movements, right? Um, how do we, how should we understand, how should we appraise, evaluate the degree to which um, the current, current struggle and resistance movement can be called a success or not? And from that perspective, for me, if success is defined as the extent to which the state has been responsive to these claims and demands that are voiced by protesters, I mean, which is, what do I mean by responsive? But responsive as being defined as the extent to which the state has acted to incorporate, to positively address societal interests and demands. Then from my perspective, I would argue that the state in both the case of Myanmar um, as well as Hong Kong um, and Thailand has not been very responsive or responsive at all. Rather, I, I would argue that the state has resorted to various forms of violence, tactics, strategies to repress people opposition. And importantly, um, is that they, the state in all of these cases that we've discussed have done so in very um, in a wide range of manner, from unpredictable, arbitrary, highly reactive ways, as well as through highly systematic, complex, consistent, 
legalized and institutionalized manner. So let me give you an example, and Megan, you'll be able to speak um, much more deeply about this as well. In Myanmar, from my own observation, we see um, the state, particularly here, I'm talking about a military um, regime, um, the Tapmada really resorted to indiscriminate violence, right? arbitrary killings, random arrest at the hand of military forces on a large scale that can be best described as reactive. By contrast, in Thailand, certainly that degree of repression, that kind of um, arbitrary crackdown occurs, but you also see the use of legal instrument, specifically Article 112 in Thailand Penal Code against Le Majest, right? against any kind of criticism um, that are targeted or that criticism against the monarchy. Um, and in Hong Kong, you see a, a, a range of responses over time. Where at, at first, um, particularly in response to the 2019 um, pro-democracy protests against the extradition law, at first you see after months of student protests, you see a, a temporary retraction of the bill, right, by Carrie Lam. Um, however, that was then followed by the institutionalization of an even more repressive um, measure that would then pass in the national security um, law. Um, and so reactive at first, but then institutionalized later in terms of repression. Um, and so in that sense, we might say that the resistance movement might not be successful in terms of demanding for the state uh, responsiveness. However, I would also argue success here can also be viewed differently, right? Um, there's nevertheless an important goal to resistance and nevertheless an important aim, um, a spirit of resilience in the people, uh, unflinching spirit of resistance, but at the same time, the precarity um, that is embedded in this kind of, um, in the people's struggle for voice, for power. I, I would briefly, to respond, yeah, I agree with um, the way you characterized, um, I like the idea of the uh, thinking about success in terms of react, reactive versus repressive. But in the case of Myanmar, I think we might have to evaluate the resistance to the coup um, in a bit of a different way, partly because the military in mounting the coup had already decided that it was kind of, you know, at an all-out war with its civilian population. I mean, most people believe that the military misjudged the extent to which the population would resist the coup, but the coup was really a reaction by the military that um, was of a last resort. You know, they they. They saw no other option other than to deny the people um, their constitutional right to vote um, by, you know, taking over the country after the NLD had won a landslide election. So to me, I think that the resistance in Myanmar, we need to evaluate in terms of, you know, the extent to which they're able to, um, you know, disrupt the military's capacity to govern and capacity to um, consolidate control over a population that doesn't want to be governed by the military. Can I can I um, ask for clarification from your perspective then, Megan? Will you argue that the military team in Myanmar here, the distinction I'm talking about is not one of reactive versus 
repressive, but one of being repressive, meaning the use of um, whether it's violence or nonviolent means to suppress opposition and resistance versus to be actually responsive, meaning to act in a positive way that actually address and accommodate, concede to protester demand. From that the contrast between being repressive and responsive, I would argue, and I would um, curious in terms of what you think about this, is that the military regime in Myanmar has not been responsive. Correct. Yeah. Right. It has been repressive. However, the way in which the military regime in Myanmar has been repressive is has has it been institutionalized? The way in which has been repressive? Has it been institutionalized? Or has it been done in a very kind of ad hoc, arbitrary manner, um, such as the arbitrary killing, the patterns of you know killings that have been perpetrated by the military regime? Uh, so I think both, um, to the extent that the, the military has the capacity to institutionalize the repression, they've tried. Um, I mean, they've basically took over the government and replaced it with um, the state administrative council at the national level all the way down to the village level. So they've completely changed the state and put military personnel in every level. Um, I mean, they've lost control over part of their territory because not um, they haven't been able to, I mean, because of civil disobedience and resistance, there's large um, portions of the country that had always been under state control that is no longer controlled by the military because resistance forces have been able to resist the military's attempts to control. And so at this point, I mean, to the extent that the military can institutionalize its repressive tactics, it is. So there's been laws, that it's, a slate of laws that it's passed. There's a new cybersecurity law. There's um, uh, many new laws uh, that are making it even more difficult for um people to speak out. Um, I mean, everything about the the state has gone back to the dark ages, basically. So I think it's done, you know, both institutionalizing of repression, repression and engaged in, um, yeah, indiscriminate acts of violence against the population. What about in Hong Kong? What do you, what do you observe, Maggie? Did you observe this kind of dynamics that making a describe between, on the one hand, pursuing sort of more reactive strategies, but at the same time, you know, with the aim for the institutionalization of these kind of repression? Yeah, so in Hong Kong, in a way that um, kind of interesting when you think about using the, the lens of active um, uh, or like reactive, right? In a sense, it is funny because the Hong Kong government appear to be like reactive because, but then they're reacting to not really the protesters demand in a way that protesters want democratic reform, not like economic uh, development, economic handout. But then the government basically is saying, oh, well, we understand you. Um, you guys are angry because, you know, oh, especially young people, you cannot find a job or um, it was hard for you um, you know, to 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 own property, right? Why don't we you kind know, of come up with a sort of you know policy that help you guys to to um you know kind of more economic based policy, right? But so in that sense, that that was I think there was kind of like playing the game of you know trying to give you those like more economic 
benefit rather than really taking into the main of the discussion, which is political reform, which because um, I, I mean, the, extra, uh, the, the movement at the beginning was about extradition bill. But then at one point, it started brewing into something more, right? They're calling for... Um, of calling for more about, for example, um, accountability for the police force, as well as also demanding, you know, at one point demanding universal uh, uh, suffrage as well, right? So those are the uh, things almost like a, a hot topic that the Hong Kong government wouldn't want to touch. And then again, you know, with and uh, because we do have the the influence from Beijing, right? And those are also very sensitive topic from Beijing. So what what we see is in the end, while you know, kind of the carrot that stick. The carrot didn't really work, and then so in the end, also the protests also kind of escalate into into you know more confrontational, more you know a lot of direct actions. So in that sense, the repressive comes later, and also I think um, I don't know if it's also the same case as Myanmar, but COVID nineteen the pandemic basically opened the, the door for a lot for the government for the authority to basically start implementing rules that control population and control whether they can go out or not and extend this sort of control um, as a way to suppress you know, dissident and suppress voices, right? So, I mean, even going into the pandemic, the, the, the Hong Kong movement has already been, you know, taking a lot of hit from those new regulation and laws. But then after the pandemic, um, basically that sort of civil society, the vibrant civil society that we used to see, you used to see in Hong Kong, basically just disappear. And, um, and again, we have a lot of new apps about like the health check apps that are um, being, uh, being uh, employed. But a lot of time people are really really seeing that sort of double side, right? One is sure for health purpose, but the other is also in a way have this sort of political undertone into controlling where people goes or you know, that sort of surveilling, you know, where you're going, who you're talking to and whatnot. So definitely, um, I would say, especially after the pandemic, we see this institutionalization of state repression by just you know, implementing all this regulation that um, basically that try to, you know, monitor people. As we approach the end of our conversation today, this is also fascinating. I'm enjoying listening to you all speak about these really important and critical topics. I wonder if you can maybe now turn to your own role in this research a little bit. As political scientists, how involved do you get in the issues that you're researching? And what do you see as your ethical and political obligations when it comes to the kinds of work that you've been describing? I think in the Myanmar case, it's it's very difficult not to get involved because no matter what you're researching, for the most part, it's likely that as the coup occurred, especially if you're researching civil society, everyone that you'd be engaged with is in some way, participating in resistance to the regime. Not, I mean, not everyone, but, you know, everyone is affected. For 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 a while, um, you know, there were nationwide protests. The civil disobedience movement led to, like, you know, the uh, mass strikes in which people didn't go to work. Um, I had friends who were um, working at NGOs and, you know, people were weren't coming to work, they were protesting, and then uh, many, many NGOs had to leave the country. So um, it's, it's very difficult not to get involved both morally and practically. Yeah. So um, 
for example, um, I stopped a lot of my research for about a month and just sort of was updating myself on the situation, um, communicating with friends, learning how to use like more secure digital platforms like Signal. I also kind of got involved in fundraising um, for, um, you know, uh, civil disobedience movement participants that were not receiving a salary. So, I mean, just very small things like anything I could do to um, raise funds from within my family or my colleagues. Um, so trying to get get the message out. Um, so, yeah, it's it's hard to to not get involved, like I said before, in Myanmar. Um, but I, I do think that um, in context like this, uh, more broadly, you know, in context where you're you're engaged in research on um, working with people who are in very precarious situations, whose safety is at risk, um, it's just so so important to you know know about the situation, know about what the risks are, and to learn about the best way to protect the privacy and safety of the people you work with. And I'm speaking generally because it really differs based on the context, based on like the state's capacity to surveil people. Um, But I do think that using like knowing about digital security and using secure modes of communication is probably the number one way to maintain safety when you're communicating with your participants. Um, I can I can jump in. Um, again, this is studying about you know Hong Kong people and Hong Kong diaspora. It's you know it, it cannot get as personal as it is because you know at one point as I I am one of them too, right? So, and then so in a way that um, I mean I got in I I got really into the the movement in 2019 because I was back home I was also doing research um interviewing people but you know by 2020 most of the people that I ended up interviewing they were in jail and then so it it that's kind of like the moment that it hits like wow you know um it feels like you know I got to try to do something you know kind of like you know um give them the voice and or you know amplify their voices right and that's almost you know as a community for uh of the diaspora community and also you know you know kind of you know being a hong konger but in terms of doing research right that's also that's some of the question that I constantly ask myself too um, I'm studying groups that are, you know, just trying to build, you know, Hong Kong diaspora community is relatively a new thing compared to, for example, the Tibetan, the Uyghur and the Taiwanese. They have been building up the diaspora community over the past decades and whatnot. And so the Hong Kong community is still very, you know, at, at the early stage. But then the idea is, like, you know, by, you know, kind of like making it known of, oh, this is how they work and this is, you know, how they're doing whether it is actually giving them an amplified voice so people can learn more about it or making them a target, right? Because um, what we also consider is this um, the transnational repression that, um, for example, regimes like China or Russia, that they do have that sort of facility and infrastructure to target diaspora community to basically prevent those people who choose the option of exit but then at the same time telling them also to lose their option of voice, right? So in this sense, it's almost like the, the West, where, where, what, uh, in, in a fine line of like, you know, I think it is important to, to, to give voice, it's important to have a, a academic, 
academic record, you know, through survey or different sort of method to to document this this moment. Um, but at the same time, is again, you know, like uh, going back to what Megan is talking about, the privacy and the safety too, right? So in a sense that a lot of time when I'm trying to interact with uh, with people from the diaspora community or interviewing them, you know, I try to tell them, you know, you know, those are the things that I want, I would try to protect them from, and then and then basically have a more like like honest dialogue about you know what I'm gonna do, and if at one point they they are not comfortable of doing it some of them they don't want to give me the real name they don't want to show their face and whatnot and then it, it's also fine i think there's a lot of times just for us to adjust at the same time also really placing the safety of of you know those people that we are studying you know at, at the forefront um but again that's but then for me the major struggle is about you know m- worrying that making them a target because of because i'm studying them so that that i still haven't figured out a good answer to this question but that's my 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 take from my experience doing the work and to add to that i mean first of all thanks so much ben for asking the question of you know whether or not there's uh, we view that there should be a kind of ethical obligation or responsibility if you will um for scholars to be engaged um with the resistant efforts that are currently going on in um what is Myanmar, hong kong thailand or elsewhere or beyond southeast asia um just to back up a little bit, the roundtable itself and the, the the scholars that you you see here, Megan, Maggie, Eric, Vung, um, Akanid, myself, and or and um, Mook, um, we something we all have in common is that one not only our scholarly pursuit in questions that have to do with resistance and and justice, um, but also we've all had extensive experience on the ground. We've all engaged in deeply immersive work that really, at least for me, and I, I bring out the palpable effect, right, um, of um, the kind of struggles that people, as those particularly fighting against repressive regimes, um, will have on, on their daily lives. The precarity, the precarity of like constantly stress this, how precarious it is. Um, and that's important for us to to not forget that. And I also want to share something that I, you know, from a um, work that Nathan Law, an activist in Hong Kong, um, 2014 Umbrella Movement, um, and who was then later detained for six months in 2017 after his election to the Legislative Council and who now has to live um, as an exile, right, um, in exile. And he wrote in his in his um, sharing in his in his book um, that and I'm quote here um, I was a changed man an innocent had gone after his detainment um, quote freedom is as much as a as much a gut feeling as a thought as much a cause of the heart as of the head. What drives people pursue the freedom is not only the ideal, but also their revulsion against the opposite, to be unfree. Um, for me, I thought that that's quite powerful. 
And I also remember at the time when uh, the Myanmar coup has just occurred and Mary Callahan um, gave a speech and something that really still stick with me to this day is her comment that, quote, you know, people in Myanmar fear being forgotten or ignored, but the word even more than they fear a bullet. And this really resonates with me because I, I think the statement very well resonates with not only protesters, activists, um, those who are fighting against uh, the military regime in Myanmar, but also anyone who have been muzzled, tear gassed, or detained, whether it's in Thailand, Hong Kong, or elsewhere. Um, and therefore, our effort to bring these analysis into competitive perspective is first and foremost to have a more crucial, nuanced um, understanding um, of what's going on but also come from a place, um, at least from the imperative to organize this roundtable in the first place, and then to engage with a broader public audience by disseminating our research, uh, our conversation in the new mandala, and then to engage in um, doing a podcast with you, and thanks for giving us the opportunity, is to really heed you know, a, an imperative for continue and engage um, action, in many ways, a call to action, a call for continued engagement in one capacity or another. On that note, it's been such a pleasure learning from all of you today. I've really enjoyed sitting in on your insights today about this critical set of issues in Southeast Asia and indeed around the world. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk about it. You're welcome back anytime as these developments continue to unfold. Thank you very much. That was Neutron, Eric Martinez Cujunta, Maggie Shum, and Megan Ryan. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time. <laughs>